Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please stay tuned till the end, where we're also going to share an exciting opportunity. And please feel free to share this with others who you know will also find it of interest. On Friday, April 7, this year, the second day of Passover, at 12.30 p.m., I received two text messages from an old friend who I hadn't seen or spoken to in a long time. He wrote to me, Jonathan, let me know you are all safe. I have heard about the news, what happened in the Bikah. They say they are from Ifrat. I had no idea what had happened. I was in meetings, but soon enough, the news was out. Two terrorists drove by a car driving in the Jordan Valley and opened fire on the woman and her two daughters in the car with her just two hours earlier. Then the terrorists turned around and drove up to the side of the car they had just attacked and fired a point-blank range. The women were neighbors of ours, a four-minute walk from our house. We didn't know them well, but the parents, Leo and Lucy, were in the Hebrew class with my wife when we made Aliyah in 2004. Maya and Rena, Leo and Lucy's uh, daughters, were pronounced dead on the scene. Lucy was critically injured and airlifted to Jerusalem, where specialists were brought in to save her life. On Sunday, April 9th, Rabbi Leo D. and his three surviving children buried Maya and Rena. Thousands lined the streets of our town, bearing Israeli flags, as Rabbi D. had requested. An estimated 10,000 attended the unthinkable double funeral. Days later, realizing that there was no medical hope for Lucy to recover, the family affirmed her wishes and donated her organs, and then a second funeral with even more people lining the streets and attending the burial. All this is unthinkable and something that nobody can imagine. But for my neighbor, Rabbi Leo D. and his children and their extended family, this is and was their reality. I'll be honest, I don't know Leo well, but I will tell you that every conversation with him has always been memorable. He's kind, intelligent, a critical thinker, a man of faith, and a proud Jew. And as little as we spend time together, I always really enjoy it. It's really quite memorable. He was inspiring before the murder of his wife and his children. And I'm sure he'd rather that we were never having this conversation ever. I'm sure he'd never rather being in the spotlight as he has been for nearly three months at all. But he's been an inspiration. And today I hope we can dig into some of that, some of the loss and some of What's driven him and what's helped him and his family? Sadly, we are here. 
And Rabbi Leo D. has graciously agreed to join me today on Inspiration from Zion. I, I'm, I'm weepy, even just reading this introduction. Um, and I felt before, Leo, that I didn't want to push you or come across as exploiting your loss. You've done a lot of media and you've been a tremendous inspiration. And when I visited you the day the prime minister came to visit during that first week of mourning, I mentioned briefly that many Christian friends from all over the world were sending their prayers, and that seemed to uplift you. Since then, many people have reached out and asked about you. Leo, I'm glad and grateful for you taking your time today so we can share thoughts first about Lucy and Maya and Rena, and what happened and how you're coping, and more. So thank you for joining me on Inspiration from Zion today. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, you know, during Shiva, your Shiva, the Shiva, the mourning period um, that we have the week after the burial of loved ones was far from normal, um, far from what a typical burial is. Uh, you had thousands of people come through your home, including the prime minister and and who knows how many other government leaders and and other dignitaries. But one of the things the Jewish custom, first of all, is to talk about the loved ones who you lost. Um, for those of us who didn't even have the few minutes that I did and don't know, would you please share about um, Lucy and Maya and Rena? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Lucy um, would have celebrated her birthday the, uh, last week, so we invited um, 20 of her friends around a week ago and um, uh, on, on the night of her birthday, and... Uh, there was a little uh, class of Torah, and then they went round explaining the impact that Lucy had on, on each of them. And it was an eye-opener for me because each of them said uh, pretty much uh, in, in different words that Lucy had seen the best in them and had urged them to bring it out of themselves. And that was really what she did for each of them. And they all explained really in their own words how she'd had an impact on their life by spotting a strength that was hidden inside them and urging them to bring it out. Um, and it, ma- it made me realize that that's what she did to me. Hmm. So that was Lucy. She, she sort of saw the spark in everybody and encouraged you to bring it out. And I, actually, it's one of the things that helps us to get through this period because she did that with the kids. Um, she encouraged them to be very independent. And um, they are. They, they get on with life and they, uh, they have their friends and they're, uh, happy in, in a way which one wouldn't perhaps expect at this point, but um, you know they're just um, you know they, they've been empowered, and I think I've been empowered as well. So I think that really is uh, you know down to, to Lucy. Um, Maya was uh, her name meant uh, Maya, which means uh, the water of God, which is really referring to the Torah, um, and uh, she was very much passionate about uh, Torah, teaching Torah, learning Torah. Um, an example of one of the things that she did when she was on national service, um, volunteering in a school in, in Yerucham in, in the south of Israel, it's a, a, a relatively lower social, socioeconomic uh, town. Um, she innovated um, a number of different activities, one of which was what she called Nishnosh Parsh. Nishnosh means a snack in Hebrew and Parsh mm. uh, is referring to the, um, the weekly portion of the Torah that's read. So she would prepare uh, for Thursday morning break time, um, a short paragraph on, on the weekly portion of the Torah. 
which she'd share with uh, girls who volunteered to be there in the break time. And then she would hand out snacks. I think she even bought them with her own money. And um, this was very popular. She had you know, 15, 20, maybe 25 girls would turn up from the, uh, from, from the year, from the year nine girls in the school. And uh, they really enjoyed it. So after what happened, they continued doing it. And then they decided they would like to spread it to other schools. And today, uh, Jonathan, believe it or not, there are 520 schools in Israel that are now doing this initiative wow. around the country. So uh, we hope maybe to spread it to America uh, if we can just get you know, them to make a little video about it in English. We'll pass it on to some of our friends in, in the U.S. But uh, the idea that you know, the girls actually volunteer or boys as well volunteer their time and the break time to learn a little bit extra. Um, and and they're they're taking to different schools. Apparently, different uh, people are taking turns to buy these snacks, and uh, it's 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 chesed, you know, it's a kindness, act of kindness as well as uh, as learning, which is uh, which is a perfect combination. It expresses Meyer's personality beautifully. And Meyer was twenty. She was twenty. Um, Rina, Rina was the girl who always put her arm around the the girls in the class who had no friends. She was the one who started the ball game for the girls who weren't invited. So she's, I mean, her friends have made a lot of videos about her. Um, what's been remarkable for us is to see that every uh, video clip or every picture, she's got her arm around someone else. Wow. Um, she had close friends, but she was very you know, careful to make sure that she really um, was there for everybody. Um, she, she was a, a top student, so she was able to complete her studies in about 10%, 20% of the time. But rather than taking on an extra degree or something, which she could have done at Hebrew University and completed it by the age of 16, she chose to go to a less academic school uh, with a boarding school. So she'd spend the time with friends mm-hmm. up till three or four in the morning, chatting with them and wow. uh, helping them through difficult times. And um, dedicated herself to the youth club, to Ezra, uh, where she really, she was instrumental with uh, behind starting the new uh, the new youth club in the new district of Afrat. Thank you. For, and and if I'm not mistaken, we just passed her 16th birthday. What would have been? So uh, the, her 16th birthday was literally a, a day or two after the um, the shiva, the seven days of mourning uh, completed. And her friends actually very uh, aptly um, chose to um, plant a um, a garden. In the new district of Frat Etam, which is uh, due to be oh. built in the next five, ten years, uh, they're waiting for approvals from, I think, uh, the American president. Uh, as you know, Frat is one of the few places in the world where uh, we get approval from our local council uh, and the American president, because it's obviously so important to American strategy uh, that uh, you know that, that we need his approval for building new units. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate how you said that. Um... In Shiva, I know that I had comfort when my parents died, um, speaking with people, learning things about my parents that I didn't know, personal things that others shared. Did you have opportunity for that? And, and what, and what, what can you share that you learned about Leo, uh, Lucy and, and Maya and Rena? To be honest, I was in, um, overload mode yeah. uh, adrenaline and i was talking uh i yeah. you know lucy lucy would have been the first to, to criticize me she would say let other people talk and give them a chance but <laughs> i was just i was just pumped up on adrenaline and and uh, as you know that the the uh role of the shiver is really to get the uh bereaved person to talk so yes I, I, as, as a 
uh, an ex-community rabbi, I took great advantage of that. And I had my community. I mean, I had like 300 people in the tent yeah. rotating every 20 minutes. So yeah. uh, you know, the other thing is a rabbi, you'll know, is that uh, if you have a rotating community and you can say the same thing <laughs> multiple times, that, that's also a great thing. So, um, so I was, I, you know, I didn't give much pe- many people much time to talk. Although, although there were people who came from all over the country and they wanted to share uh, memories of, of Meyer and and Rena and Lucy. And, and strangely enough, you know, they they had an impact on people all over the country, all over the world. I mean, there were people from England, from South Africa, from Australia. People came uh, America, and um, they had had an impact. And uh, Lucy, because she had been involved in teaching English, and so she was involved. Very yeah. much with the whole sort of framework of English teachers around the country, so that she was well known through uh, a lot of the zooms that uh, that took place, and she was very active. Um, and Maya and Rita were very active in in the youth club Ezra, and they've been on lots of uh, national trips. And so there were girls came from the north of Israel, from the south of Israel, people that remembered the interactions with them and just had memories of them. And I mean, we had all types of, of of guests, and and they continued coming after the seven days, after the thirty days of mourning. After, you know, we're now in the year of mourning. And um, we still have people coming. We had a, uh, four girls came on a bus from the north of Israel, probably about a five-hour journey by the time you change buses in Jerusalem and whatever. Uh, they brought a crate of uh, fruit and vegetables, which they picked themselves because they go to an agricultural school in the north. Wow. And they came here. And literally, I, I spent five, ten minutes chatting to them, gave them a drink and offered them some food. Um, and then they jumped back on the on, on the, the bus to go back another five hours back yeah. home. And yeah, but this is not untypical. I'm getting flowers every week from uh, a local community, Batayan. They've told me, I, I hadn't realized, but they've told me that apparently the whole community has decided to, to buy us flowers every Shabbat for the whole year. Um, and as you know, neighbors are bringing food the whole time. And, uh, you know, we've been absolutely uh, uh, inundated by, by love and uh, people's wishes and thoughts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really beautiful and touching. I want thank you for that. I want to take a break in just a moment, but so I don't forget. And since I didn't really write a script for this, um, I I didn't share with you. But we, as the Genesis One Two Three Foundation, right away reached out to friends and donors, and we received a nice um, bit of money, which we've been able to apply to uh, help the faculty, the staff in the schools that um, your kids attend and attended to help them cope. Um, something. So I'm really pleased with that. And I want to tell, I want to say that everybody listening to this podcast today, any donations that come in, there's a lot more needs and we'll talk about it. Um, I was actually criticized by somebody for asking for money too early, but I felt it was essential because we needed, we needed to help and I want to continue to help. And I know there's a lot that's been going on in memory of, uh, Lucy and Maya and Rena. Um, let let me take a quick break, Leo, and then we're going to come right back. Um, Leo, as long as we're talking about the all, all of the comforting the morning, have you, and, and particularly during the Shiva, when, when you were speaking, and you, I love how you described that, a community coming through every 20 minutes, um, has it been a comfort? Tremendous comfort. Um Yes, um, I, I think you know, one of the things is just the distraction and having people around is great. Um, so uh, I'm surrounded by people at the moment and, and I've got um, you know, podcasts, as, as, as you know, and uh, visitors. I'm working on multiple different projects at the moment uh, and, and uh, people are streaming through the house the whole time. And it's, it's, it is a comfort. It's a distraction. 
Um, it's interesting. I always remember as a kid, I, I was I used to listen to LBC Radio, which is the London Broadcasting Company Radio, which is the main talkback radio in, in England. And um, one of the presenters, who was actually was a Christian uh, lady, um, was just talking to one of the other presenters one, one afternoon. And she said um, that she lost her father. And she said only her Jewish friends knew what to do. She said her Jewish uh, friends came immediately around and brought food and sat there with her and chatted to her. She said, but everyone else sort of wasn't quite sure what to do, how to react. And um, she said they, sort of, they, they, they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to call her because they weren't sure if they were close enough friends to want she'd want to speak to them. Yeah. And the Jewish friends just came around because you know, whether you're close or not close, it's the culture is to just to surround the person. And um, I think it is a beautiful uh, aspect of, uh, of, of Jewish mourning. Okay, thank you for. I'm glad. I'm glad for the comfort. Something I've worried about personally, and and uh, others ask always how you are, which is really an awkward, terrible question, albeit sincere. Um, Leo, take us back to to April seventh. Um, uh, you you spoke about it. You've spoken about it a lot, but I'm not sure that anyone listening knows all the details. Uh, you you were you you and Lucy were driving in separate cars. You were somewhat further ahead going to the north going i to think we, we we were we were not that much further ahead actually we may have been one minute ahead um uh-huh. because we left um later but lucy had to drop off karen on the way at a national service in a uh let's an orphanage in jerusalem she was spending shabbat in the orphanage otherwise she would have been in the car with lucy and and maya and uh, rena um and um Waze directed us both, apparently, um, the long route, uh, which is to, that means there's a the straight road is the 90 from uh, Jerusalem up to uh, from the Dead Sea right up to um, the, to the Kinneret, to the Sea of Galilee. Um, and that, that's the straightforward route. But it, it halfway up, there's a little sort of turning and a, a windy road. And it directs us both up that windy road. Now, we recently bought um, a new small car because uh, Meyer and Karen and Talib uh-huh. are all driving. And they were fighting over the small car, which <laughs> my car. So and we had a bigger car, which was, was uh, not really appropriate for them to drive, seven-seater. So we swapped our seven-seater for another uh, five-seater. And that's why we were driving two cars up. Otherwise, we would have been in one car, which, um, you know, who knows what would have happened. Um, so... Um, um, uh, I, I was uh, imagining that Lucy was sitting next to me and she was uh, telling me, uh, Leo, take the 90, take the straight route. And even if it's a bit longer, it's less stressful for the driver. That's what she'd always say to me. Okay. Uh, so I switched ways to the other route and it turned out to be two minutes quicker, ah. which is bizarre. Um, yeah. Lucy, I assumed, would do the same thing because she was the one who'd always give me that advice, but she obviously chose not to for whatever reason. I can only imagine maybe because of the flowers were out and maybe she wanted the circuitous route or something to, to see it. I've no idea. Maybe she wasn't paying attention. Um, and so we went up the 90 and she must have taken a left uh, around the, uh, the other route. And that's where it all happened, just at that junction. We didn't find out till about half an hour later, uh, maybe 45 minutes later, when my sister was coming with my parents and her, her two sons in a third car. An hour later, they set off. And they'd heard that there'd been a, a terror attack on the road and the taxi driver had had to divert to a different route. So when the, when she heard this, she immediately called me to say I was okay. Mm. Um, and I said, I'm fine, but I want to check on Lucy. So I called Lucy and there was no answer. And I called Maya, there was no answer. I called uh, Rena, there was no answer. And um, then uh, I, I looked at Google Family Link and I saw that they were all at this junction. 
and we knew from the news that's where the where the, the terror attack had been. So we were obviously, you know, uh, filled with uh, uh, fear. Um, and then Yehuda had access to some sort of website where they Yehuda's posted, your son. Yeah, my, my son had. Uh, so I was traveling with Yehuda and with um, Tali. And Yehuda had access to some sort of website that has pictures of, of uh, terror attacks like very quickly. So he saw a picture of uh, a car and, and there was bullet holes in it. It was a white car and there was a swim bag on the back seat and it was our swim bag and it had blood on it. So that was, uh, you know, that was like uh, the worst possible uh, news you could get. And we already were turning around and we were driving back. So we got there about, about an hour, an hour and a half later. Um, I tried to get close to the scene and I was pushed away by the police and the uh, and the army. They have a protocol. They don't let you go and see it. And uh, they said the psychologists recommend that. And I think in hindsight, they were right. But I was, of course, very, very keen to see w- w- what there was there. But they wouldn't let me. Um, after waiting for about half an hour, sitting in an ambulance because it was very hot, um, then um, I, I insisted we had some sort of identification to make sure that, uh, you know, and then we knew we'd have to go down to Hadassah and Karim to the hospital in Jerusalem because we knew that uh, if it was Lucy, she'd been sent there. And um, they brought me Maya's um, ID card. So again, that was, uh, you know, another... another uh, and and Luce, uh, Maya and Rena were both declared dead on the spot, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, there was something that... I, I, I don't remember when it was, Leo, when it was, whether you speaking in public or one of the funerals, but you also missed a phone call. Right. There was, um, when I looked at my WhatsApp uh, later on, I saw that Maya had tried to call me. I think it was um, 10, uh, 35. I think I come with that. There was a t- time. It was literally uh, the time of the, uh, of, of the, um, at the attack. So she was sitting in the back and maybe she had, you know, she probably was on her phone at the time and she had just enough time to call me. Um, and I hadn't spotted it until then. So of course that was uh, very upsetting, but as, as, as everyone says, I mean, it wouldn't have made any difference. I don't know whether by the time I answered it, whether she would have been able to speak at all. And there was nothing I could have done. How, how when you, when I remember hearing you speak about it, you said something to the effect that it's going to, cause you a lot loss of sleep or stress not having i think i think i've come to terms with the fact that you know it, it's not something which uh i uh i could have had any influence on uh you know in, in the circumstances i couldn't have called the uh the uh, uh police or the ambulance any quicker and in fact um the first people on the scene the next car along uh were two doctors a husband and oh. wife with their kids and uh, they actually um were the ones who um he operated he was actually a um um a particular type of doctor i forget what type specialist um he knew how to do a tracheotomy and he put in a pipe literally a a straw or something into uh lucy's throat in order to allow her to breathe and that's what enabled her to be alive when the paramedics came but i mean what what was the chance that somebody the next car along would have two doctors one of whom was a paramedic and one of whom was a specialist in the particular expertise of putting in a tracheotomy. And things you see on uh, whether it's with a pen cap or with a straw or something. It was a pen. It was a pen. Improvised. It was a pen. Yeah, that was what it was. And, and then, yeah. they, and then uh, um, uh, another doctor came along and uh, literally a couple of cars further on and he had a medical kit and he was able to uh, had, had some equipment that they were able to use and then the, the ambulance came. So, um Yeah. So Jewish custom is is that we bury 
our loved ones as soon as possible, often the same day um, mm-hmm. in which they die. That was a Friday. That was already noontime by the time you were there and, and understood what happened. And Lucy had already been airlifted to the hospital. And if I remember correctly, you had to drive yourself to the hospital. There was no time for a burial then. And and I, I can't even imagine what was going through your mind. But then then Shabbat begins. And Shabbat is a day we don't mourn. And, and you're you're in this strange, terrible, horrific situation. Your wife is fighting for her life. Your daughters have been murdered. And it was not that Shabbat, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't remember the sequence, but I, I maybe it was that Shabbat. Um, here in our community, in the synagogue in which you attend, which is a minute and a half walk from my house, Um the person leading the prayers at some point stopped or broke down and you went up to him and whispered something, which then was shared and went all over. That was, yeah, that was actually seventh day of uh, Passover. Um, Cause the Shabbat, we were in the hospital still, but the seventh day of Passover we, it was after uh, the Leviathan, after the funerals. And um, a friend of mine, Alan was uh, praying uh and the Hallel, which is the uh, usually sung in a very nice way on Pesach, on Passover, and um, I think out of respect for me or out of you know uh, deference, he decided just to say it very quietly and uh, for the whole community. And that's not the tradition. The tradition is to sing it. So I went up to him after the first uh, uh, chapter of, of Psalms, which is usually sung. I said, Alan, I said, sing it, you know, properly. Um, you know, this is, this is, it's a festival. So he did. Um, How did you have the composure for that? You had just buried your daughters and your wife. I mean, how, how do you, where does that come from? So I'll t- I tell you something that, uh, you know, the whole, the whole experience obviously was um, very uh, troubling and, and very difficult and, but also very strange because, uh, as you say, normally one buries immediately. One starts the seven days of mourning, and one then is in, in the middle of the, three, the, the first month, the beginning of the first month of mourning, and then one completes it. And the, the Jewish mourning, as you know, is designed to focus the greatest amount of pain on the, the burial, yeah, and then to relax it a little bit for the week, and a little bit more for the month, and a little bit more for the year, and then to sort of ease it off. That that's the the, the, uh, the idea. Um, and yet what happened to us was very strange because everything happened on the second day of Passover, as you mentioned. So technically, um, the moment that uh, the girls were declared dead, which was immediately, we were in a period of mourning, uh, which, is, which one has before the uh, uh, funeral. The moment that the funeral had finished, we returned to Passover. There's no mourning during Passover. So right. we were back into normal, you know, sort of almost happy uh, Passover mode. Uh, and then there was another funeral, so we were down again for for that. And then, we, and then, uh, Jewish law takes us back into Passover, and then, which is happy, and then into seventh day of Passover, which is very happy. Um, and then, immediately after Passover was finished, we went straight into the seventh day of mourning, the Shiva, and that was like a real let low. And then, immediately after that was Shabbat, so we're back into you know, sort of happy mode in a sense because Shabbat there is is a time of of no mourning. And then, yeah, so, so effectively, our experience was like this, was up and down. And strangely enough, when uh, Benny Gantz, who's uh, the opposition leader, came to, the, um, uh, to, to visit me in the uh, Shiva, 
um, I was talking to everyone about it and asking them the question. I said, I don't know why it happened in this way, because it's probably, it's pretty unusual to have two funerals during Passover. It's probably not happened, you know, more than once every hundred, few hundred years, yeah. such, a, such a thing. It's quite unusual. Um, so I said, you know, what, why did, why did it happen? What, what was the meaning of it? And um, he looked at me and he said, I'll tell you what the meaning is. He said, um, he said, God is telling you that you're going to have ups and downs in your life. Now you're going to be happy and sad. And you're going to have to work out how to sort of bring the two together. So I looked at him and I said, thank you, Rabbi Benny. Wow. Said, what, what do you mean Rabbi Benny? I said, well, under Jewish, yeah. by Jewish law, if somebody teaches you one uh, bit of Torah, then you call them Rabbi. So uh, Very profound. And he's not a, a particularly religious man. So he, funnily enough, he is a religious man. He just oh. doesn't, uh, he doesn't actually advertise it, but uh, he went to uh, a religious school. He was under Rav Druckmann. Um, and uh, yeah, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's a secret religious man. That's nice to know. I didn't know that. And nice that he was able to inspire you and, 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 and comfort you like that as well. Mm. Um, how, how has all of this impacted your faith and your relationship to God? So I brought back to uh, my teacher, one of my teachers, Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, who was the previous chief rabbi. Um, and he always used to quote a particular Holocaust survivor. And when they asked this Holocaust survivor, um, you know, did the uh, Holocaust uh, damage your faith in God? Uh, he answered, no. He said it damaged my faith in man. Wow. And this is, well, what do you mean in the sense that uh, uh, I think about nine of the uh, of the officers at the Wannersee conference in Germany that de- decided on the final solution um, had been PhDs from Heidelberg University. So he started having you know, doubts about um, secular learning, university knowledge, and uh, man, you know, mankind, but not about God. And I think that uh, you know that that's really what uh, it made me wonder uh, about. The whole situation here that people describe as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether uh-huh. there really is a conflict <laughs> and whether uh, it's perhaps uh, goaded on by the media and uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. international politicians uh, for their own uh, purposes. So uh, that, that's where I have my doubts, not, not in God. Interesting. Thank you for that. Let, let's. I want to come back to that. Uh, I actually made a note and I have to... I have to, now you've got me thinking in multiple tracks, but let's just take a quick break. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with the Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, Many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs. And living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, 
we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. And please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured. And there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. I want to talk to you, Leo, about the broader picture, Palestinian Arabs, peace, coexistence. We live in what people in the world pejoratively call a settlement, which tends to depict us as um, evil, right, intolerant, right, right-wing extremists um, and subjugating our, our Palestinian Arab neighbors. But before that, um, you did something that I kind of understand, but kind of don't. Um, at some point, I don't know if it was after Shiva, after the morning, first morning period ended, you spoke about meeting the family members of the terrorists who murdered Lucy and Maya and Rina. Why did you express this and what came of it? Um, I expressed I wanted to um, interview them on television and ask them two questions, which were, number one, why? what did they think they would achieve by doing this? Number two, um, what is their vision for a better world for their children? And uh, I felt that by doing that, um, we could uh, uh, reveal the emptiness of these people's uh, philosophy. And, um, you know, that might be something good that could come out of this. As it happens, Jonathan, you don't know this perhaps, but um, I invited a friend of mine who's a BBC reporter to come to film me um, visiting uh, one of the recipients of uh, Luce's organs. In fact, the, one of the guys who received a kidney was a, uh, is uh, an Arab Muslim Israeli yeah. who lives in the north of Israel. So I thought that it would be interesting for him to come along to film this for British television, which is typically not particularly pro-Israel right. uh, or pro-Jewish, uh, and, and to have that uh, recorded. So he came over. Um, he came over on the Sunday, and he didn't come straight to my house. He actually um, uh, WhatsApped me from Nablus uh, on Sunday afternoon. He said, Leo, I'm standing here interviewing the brother of the guy who killed Lucy, Rena, and Maya. And I'd like your two questions by WhatsApp. Don't don't speak them into the phone because I can't pick up my phone. I can only read from it. Um, And then he came along later that evening. He arrived about 10 o'clock at night and sat around my kitchen table. He showed me on his computer the footage. He'd asked him the two questions. He'd actually brought him inside the house. Um, and he'd interviewed him in front of a poster with the three martyrs uh, on it and uh, asked him those two questions. So I, I won't tell you the answers because um, it's going to be some very, very interesting uh, uh, footage that's going to come out. He's got in the next week or two. Okay. And uh, yeah, your, your viewers can, can wait and see that. But uh, I think there was very interesting observation from that footage that uh, could reveal a lot about what's going on at the moment in, amongst Palestinians. Okay, well, I, I, I look forward and everyone, I'm going to ask everyone who's listening now to if you specifically want to see that as soon as it's available, please email me at, at inspirationfromzion at gmail 
com, and we'll make sure you get that. Um, how is it? Sh- so that's a fascinating perspective. But we live here. How has your loss, how has the murder of your wife and daughters changed your perspective on coexistence and or peace with our Palestinian Arab neighbors? Don't say strangely, it's enhanced my uh, uh, my feeling that peace is achievable. Um, but peace is, well, uh, I, I want to make a distinction between peace and shalom. Peace is never achievable anywhere. Um, shalom is achievable. And if I had to explain the difference, I would say that peace is a bit like a mosaic and shalom is a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. So peace um, requires every piece to be a little square, beautiful uh-huh, piece that uh-huh. fits together. Um, and uh, everyone has to sort of conform to a certain idea of peace and be a little bit the same. And uh, then you can have uh, a mosaic, even though the colors might be slightly different, they all have to conform a lot to fit into a nice, beautiful sort of uh, uh, crisscross pattern. Uh, shalom um, comes from the root shleimut in Hebrew, which means completeness. It, does, it doesn't have any uh, idea of being the same. Um, and what it means is like a jigsaw puzzle. Every piece can be completely different shape. But as I say to people, if you remember during COVID, we did the 2,000-piece uh, puzzle on our kitchen table. But if there was a, um, uh, a cloth underneath it, a tablecloth, and it wasn't beautifully ironed, then the bumps in the tablecloth would mean you couldn't complete the jigsaw puzzle. Right. In order for shalom, you need to iron out the, um, the, the wrinkles, and that means remove the evil. Um, so I think that you know, it's clear to me that there's a, there are, is some evil in the Palestinian uh, Authority, in Gaza, amongst our Arab uh, friends and neighbors, um, and that has to be removed. There's no way of making peace with these people. And I think the mistake of the past has been to try and pretend that there, there uh, it could be reasonably negotiated with or even to discuss anything with them at all. I think they have to be um, neutralized by their own people, uh, some sort of revolution. And then a shalom plan is highly achievable, which could be, uh, you know, which would be for the good of them and for us. And you feel more optimistic? I feel very optimistic if, if uh, people understand this, dif- this distinction between shalom and peace. If we're constantly trying to negotiate with the Arab leaders, we're never going to have peace and we'll never have shalom. Because these people are not peaceful people. They are evil people who have to be removed. Once they're removed, the actual Palestinian people, the majority of them are good people like you and me. They want the best for their kids. They want the best future for their children. And they can be, um, you know, negotiated with and they can be um, uh, they, accommodated. But um, as long as we're going through their leadership, uh, we're making a huge mistake. And uh, I think that's, you know, it's, it's generally a mistake that's been made. On the, you look at the Iran uh, deal that's uh, being negotiated by the U.S. Um, the idea of actually negotiating with a terrorist state and the leadership of the terrorist state who are uh, overtly um, creating a nuclear bomb in order to strike America, to strike Europe, to strike Israel, um, is so distasteful and stupid. Um, it, it's unbelievable that anyone would actually want to negotiate with these people right. and trust them. Um, they're not people you discuss with the people you remove, um, and then you discuss with the uh, the, the actual you know, people underneath when there's a democratic government that's uh, running the state. But as far as, you know, as we saw with Hitler, um, you know, trying to negotiate with Hitler is a complete waste of time. Actually, is is counterproductive. Well, it it, it emboldened him. Um, yeah, strengthened yeah. him. Um, another thing you spoke about, and again, forgive me, I don't know if you remember, even, but there were the many instances, and and people in following you, riveted, riveted by your clarity, riveted by the inspiration that you're providing 
to others. One of the things that you spoke about, I think it was at a press conference, was specifically the, about the um, moral ambiguity of the media. Uh, and, and you spoke about that in general. And then more recently, in the last month or so, something broke. It was discovered that um, one of the, I would say, most notorious uh, news anchors, Christian Anampour from CNN, had the vulgarity to say that Lucy and Maya and Rena were killed in a shootout. Um, and they've since apologized for that. But I think it's public that you've spoken about taking further action. Can you speak generally about that and specifically vis-a-vis CNN? Yes, yes, Jonathan. Um, the, um, in in uh, Hebrew, the word for truth is emet, which is spelled in aleph, a mem, and a tough. So aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, tough is the last, and mem is the middle one. So there's a beautiful uh, Talmudic idea that emet, truth, um, is when you see the picture from the beginning to the end, uh, from, wow. from, from the start to the finish. Um, and also the two, it, emet can be worked out with two words, em and met. Em means mother and met means death. So basically from birth to death, from beginning to end, that is truth. Now, when, you, when you see the whole picture, you come to truth. When you uh, focus in on one aspect of it, uh, you have what's in Hebrew called sheker, which is three Hebrew letters which are all squashed together at the end of the alphabet. Uh, in other words, usually a lie is not um, is not completely wrong. It's usually focusing on some element of the truth. But when you focus in in you know in great detail, you get something which is not accurate. So uh, the Indians have a beautiful metaphor of three blind men uh, touching an elephant, and one's touching a leg, and one's touching a tail, and one's touching. Oh a tail. yeah. And uh, the one who's touching a leg says uh, to the three blind men, so he says, "This is a tree trunk." And the one who's touching the tail says, no, this is like a snake. And the one who's touching the, the trunk says, no, it's like a pipe. And, uh, of course, they're all correct. But if you zoom out, they, they would understand that they're all describing the same thing. That's, that's what we call sheker, which is, which is like not, not the full truth. Um, but what CNN does is, is even worse, actually. And, and, and borders, it really is evil. And I've described it as evil. And people have told me, have told me off for describing it as evil. But it's evil because what they do is they tell an anti-truth. I think your Christian... Uh, viewers will understand the concept of an anti-truth from other other terminology that they they use more frequently, but um, it's it's an old English word. I think it means something else. But I, I I struggled to find a word in the English language that refers to not a lie, which is a part of the truth, but something which is completely the opposite right. to the actual situation that exists, and, and and to reverse the truth in such a way that you're actually saying the opposite. And so CNN are the masters of telling anti-truths. So for example, they described as you say my. Uh, daughters and my wife as being in a shootout. In other words, that they were terrorists. So rather than being the victim, they suddenly became the perpetrators. And presumably the uh, Palestinians were just defending themselves in the <laughs> shootout. Um, and um, you know, the British Foreign Office started uh, with this line as well before um, I had a word with them and they reversed in a, in a beautiful way. Um, they announced that uh, there'd been three British Israelis had been killed and we asked all sides to de-escalate tensions. Oh, so um, Melanie Phillips, who's an excellent uh, British uh, uh, journalist, as you know, um, wrote an article very quickly about it, saying there are three problems with this statement. She said, number one, they weren't killed. They were brutally murdered uh, by Arab terrorists. Number two, she said, they, they were not just British Israelis. They were British citizens, right? It should be enough for Correct. the British uh, foreign office to say they were British, not to, to, to qualify it in any way. And then she said they asked for all sides to de-escalate tensions. Presumably, that includes the dead women themselves. So this was extreme again, an anti-truth um, you know, from the British Foreign Office. 
Um, actually, what came of that, uh, Jonathan, was that when I uh, expressed my uh, dissatisfaction to the consul here, um, and I told them that I was going to express these views uh, widely on, on the media, um, I woke up the next morning and found a letter from the British Foreign Minister, James right. Cleverly, which uh, set out in no uncertain terms that uh, the British, uh, you know, British government was uh, devastated about the loss of these three British women and how there's no justification for terror and the victim is never wrong and the terrorists are, are never right. And it, uh, we unequivocally condemn terror, uh, which I thought was beautiful because it's the first time that anyone has unequivocally condemned terror, even in Israel and even against Jews. Um, and I think that was uh, a, a startling letter. And I immediately named it the Cleverly Declaration after Correct. the Declaration. Correct. And I've asked the Israeli Foreign Minister, Eli Cohen, if you can frame it and put it up in the Israel Museum next to the Baltimore wow. and give a copy to every foreign minister that he meets from now on uh, and tell them that this is the new standard for reporting about terror in Israel and that nothing else uh, will hit the mark. Well, again, you know what? Again, anyone listening who wants a copy of that, please email and let's and, and, and let's make that uh, make that happen. Um a friend of mine, a good friend, uh, so I shared with a number of people that we were having this conversation. And I said, what do you, what do you want to know? And this, this question is very profound. I, I don't want to take credit, but I think it's important. And it's important because of how much, uh, I'm glad that you've been comforted, but you, I, I don't know if you know how much you've been comforting other people. So Dave wrote to me, what if in the middle of the night, somehow a miracle occurred? And all of the grief and anger, but not the loss, are completely gone. What would your day like be when you woke up the next day? And how could you envision that miracle to help other grieving people who hear this? So, John, the first thing to say, I don't have any anger. And I didn't have any anger from the beginning. Um, And I I don't know why. Um, I think I was blessed um, not to have the anger. I met one other victim uh, who came to the uh, Shiva, uh, who felt the same way. Both of us had one thing in common, that we'd studied uh, Emuna, which is Jewish uh, faith, effectively, um, in classes for previous years. Um, and so we'd sort of built up our uh, Emuna muscle, uh, in the words of Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, who's the uh, rabbi of Bokaraton, and a great inspiration to me that, uh, you know, that faith is not something which you either have or you don't have. It's something you work on. Wow. And he says that if you work on it when times are good and you thank God for when things go well, he said, then you'll have a strong muscle for when things don't go well. And I, you know, I, I, I'd had no experience of that because I really had nothing, no challenges in my life uh, on this scale or anything near it. Um, and then I was faced with this. And I think that, um, you know, it, it definitely has been something which I had in common with this other fellow. We try, I was trying to work out if there was anything else that uh, we, we both had in common, but it seems to be that we both had. I spent a lot of time studying this before the uh, our, our tragedies that occurred. Um, and I honestly, you know, I, I feel a very strong faith. Um, recently, I've been saying to people that, you know, if you look at your life, uh, you have a limited amount of challenges in your life. And, and of course, we have more challenges in our family now than, than most, uh, almost everyone. But it's a limited number of challenges. Um, and you have infinite good because you wake up in the morning, the sun's rising, you're breathing, there's oxygen in the air, uh, the water molecules are formed in such a way that, uh, you know, that, that the earth can exist, your body has a solvent and 
there are so many different miracles that take place every every nanosecond that we're not even thinking of. Um, so I find that um, prayer is something which uh, makes a big impact and, and always has. Um, and also avoiding the news, um, strangely enough. So something wow. very positive positive about podcasts such as yours because they fill you with you know optimism um if you switch on the news uh, we don't have a television and lucy's decision when the kids were born was not to have a tv in the house um ever because um it becomes a center of attention and also because worst of all um you start believing what you read what you see on the news and of course it's it's sheker um in the jewish sense of focusing in on one or two stories usually the worst stories so early on um, when the kids were born that we weren't going to have a television at home uh, and mostly because um, the sort of things that they call we call news um, is full of sheker which is um, you know this concept of lying by focusing on, on a small part of the truth so yes it focuses in on terror attacks and it focuses in on uh, people who are pop stars who are very rich and very influential makes you feel uh, uh, jealous of them and then people who are very rich and you feel you know, the need, greed and the need to buy things and spend money and and, and um, all, all these different sort of negative feelings come out of a television um, and um, I think in a prayer I was I contrast with um, television with news um, actually is a time we focus in Jewish prayer a lot on the Psalms and the Psalms are all about uh, the greatness of God's world and focusing on, on what we have every minute of the day. And I think that fills you with a positivity, which you don't get from uh, from television. And in fact, I, I write about all this, uh, Jonathan, in my book, uh, Transforming the World, the Jewish Impact on Modernity, which I wrote about, um, I wrote 11 years ago. We published it seven years ago. It's on Amazon, um, but effectively lays out my whole life philosophy. And I think that also helps that uh, I had a life philosophy when this all yeah. happened. So, uh, you know, it, this really came from the fact that as I was a community rabbi, uh, these were the lessons I taught to my uh, community. And um, it's something which I guess I probably listened to occasionally when I was teaching it. You're reminding me, I think you drove. but We shared a ride to or from Jerusalem sometime years ago. And we spoke about that. Um, Give me the name of the book again so we can encourage others to buy it. It's called Transforming the World, the Jewish Impact on Modernity. And uh, in the book, actually, I talk about um, two things. Number one is you know, why the Torah, the Old Testament, um, gives you happy, makes you happy. And number two, uh, why um, having Jews in the world actually contributes to, uh, to peace, to shalom. Excellent. Um, yeah. So there's, there's interesting messages in there, I think, for, for everyone. Very good. Leo, one more break, and then we're going to begin to wrap up. For most of us, the COVID pandemic is behind us, but there are still opportunities that you may not know about that can help you, your church, other nonprofit, or business. The Employee Retention Tax Credit, ERTC, is important for all employers to explore and potentially receive a significant financial credit for having retained employees during the COVID shutdowns and business disruptions. If you have not already applied to receive the ERTC, part of the U.S. CARES Act, for your church, nonprofit, or business, please reach out to my friend, Liz Browser, who can help you. Liz is from Sheridan Wealth Advisors, a boutique tax advisory firm based in Miami. She provides honest and customized concierge service with a strong specialty in nonprofit and faith-based organizations. On top of being a great professional, Liz is really one of the good guys. 
She embraces the importance of building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's personal, so much so that she and Sheridan Wealth Advisors will donate a portion of their income to support the Genesis 123 Foundation in building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's what I call a win-win-win-win. Reach out to Liz directly in the U.S. at 954-258-6097, 954-258-6097, or email at liz at sheridanadvisors.com. There, you know, there's so much uh, we could talk about that I would love to speak with you personally. I feel like that, like like Lucy would have said to you, I, I'd be not monopolizing your time. And I've been deliberate not to be in your face. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the, for the conversation. What, there are many things that came out of the funerals, out of the Shiva, out of your speaking, out of media that you've done. One that impressed me so much and I've shared was your story about Lucy's chicken soup recipe. Right. Um, so, so Lucy um, would not share her chicken soup recipe uh, with, with me. She shared it with friends uh, for, <laughs> many, for many years. And then, and then literally about a month before all this happened, uh, she was very busy because she was marking um, Bagrut papers for English. So that's like, um, I don't know what they call them in, in America and England, they're A-levels, they're the final, the year 12 uh, national papers uh, for the students. And she was on the, the National Committee of Teachers marking these for, um, for other schools. And so she had 48 hours work, you know, in, in a week to squeeze in with her regular teaching as well. So she had no time on a Friday morning to cook for Shabbat. So she finally shared the chicken soup recipe with me. My WhatsApp, uh, I think, right? My WhatsApp, and I then made it uh, quite successfully. Um, and then, <laughs> of course, when all this, ha- <clears throat> when all this happened, <clears throat> I shared it um, with the world, and, and uh, it, it ended up in the Times newspaper, I think, in England, and uh, as did Maya's recipe for uh, chocolate uh, brownies. Didn't and uh, then we, the next thing we discovered was people all over the world were making chocolate brownies, which were gluten-free, because I'm actually gluten-free. Generally. Ah, that's and, right. Uh, so people make and which they're the beautiful chocolate brownies and um, and and Lucy's chicken soup as well. So um, and the, and actually for her birthday, her friends put together um, a full cookbook uh, online, oh. uh, which I'm sure you can get a copy of maybe from your wife um, and uh, share that with the um, you know, with, with with your viewers. I'll look for that. Um, well, you're reminding me. We I don't know when during at some point we made a meal for you. Um, and it was Thank special you. to us because we also have three daughters who are gluten free. So it's normal for us. And I didn't know at the time, but it's hard being gluten free and it's hard trusting depending on how strict you are. So it made us feel extra good that we could provide that in, 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 um, in confidence for, for you. It's, um, uh, you, you know what, a regular meal. I, I, I'm not, uh, I won't drop dead if I eat, um, uh, gluten, so I'm, I'm okay. I, I can have a little bit, but um, so it doesn't worry me. In a normal meal, there's always potatoes or rice or something. The problem is when you're snacking and people provide biscuits and uh. sandwiches, and I'm, I'm starving, <laughs> hungry. Actually, that uh, is, in fact, what happened. I, I, I'll tell you a little story. Maybe your your uh, viewers will uh, find this interesting. So um, I was interviewed by Channel 13 Television at about 6:45 in the morning for their morning show live. Um, Here about- in Yeah, three or four weeks ago. And I told the following story. 
I told the story that I was in the Knesset because I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Knesset doing various projects since this happened. And um, I was waiting between meetings, between uh, different, different meetings, and they have a um, a um, had pami. What's that? A one-use plastic policy yeah, in right. uh, in the Knesset uh, where, where they banned it. So you can't actually get a plastic cup of water. There's no water coolers um, in the Knesset, and uh, there's no way you get a snack or anything at all um, unless you're in the room with a with a, a member of, of parliament um, or go to the restaurant, which I never quite located. um, so you walk around these long corridors it's like a rabbit hutch and uh, i was standing there waiting two hours for um my next meeting and everyone was coming up to me and saying rabbi leah we feel so strongly and and hugging me and kissing me and this um and i after a while i just was tired i was thirsty so i hid behind a column somewhere and i was on my phone just checking my messages and a young guy came up to me in jeans and a t-shirt a 20 20 25 year old guy and he said instead of saying how are you he said, how can I help you? Uh-huh. And is there anything you need? So um, I looked at him and I said, you know what? He said, I really would kill for a glass, uh, for a cup of coffee. He said, don't worry. He said, I'll, I'll take you there. So he um, didn't know who I was. He asked me what my name was. I said, Leo, and I asked him what his name. And he said, Eliran. And I asked him what, uh, he said to me, what do you do here? I said, I'm just visiting. And, and I said to him, what do you do? He said, I'm in transport. I think he was just delivery man. Um, so he first took me down a little corridor from where I was standing to a little office. And it was a cupboard. He opened it and he took out a, a paper coffee cup. Mm. He said, we have a uh, one-use plastic policy in um, the Knesset. He said, but I know where they're kept. So he took <laughs> this cup. And then he took me down the corridor. He took me up to the fifth floor to the accountant's office. And there was a, 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 a kettle and there was some coffee and there was a little fridge of milk. And he said, just make yourself a coffee, which I did. He came out, actually, and he brought me. Um, a um, fruit bar. Uh, I actually kept it in my wallet, the, the wrap-up. In case I have to see him again, I'm going to wow. show him. So, and, and he said to me, here, and this is for you as well. I said to him, I said, did you pay for that? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, don't worry, it's fine. I've got plenty of them. So this guy literally saved me yeah. uh, on that particular day and uh, you know, should get the Knesset Prize for hospitality. Um, and anyway, that was the end of that. That was so. This was uh, when this Channel Thirteen presenter said to me, uh, "Rabbi D, how are you?" And I said to him, "Don't ask how are you. Ask what can I do for you?" Because yeah. you know, every so often somebody will say, um, somebody might say, "I need a cup of coffee," and then you can actually do something for them. Um, anyway, so two weeks after that, I was back in the Knesset, walking down the corridor, and a guy comes around, puts his arm around me, says, uh, "Rabbi D, I want to thank you." So I said, uh, well, "Thank me? Why?" He said, I'm the procurement uh, manager for the Knesset. He said, and because of your interview on Channel 13, he said, we're reintroducing uh, one single-use plastic into the Knesset. Oh, wow. So I'm, I'm actually a bit into... Uh, into yeah, uh, into environmentalism, uh, right? That's not what you wanted. Yeah, so not exactly what I wanted, but I'm glad that people can now sort of get a drink uh, when they're walking down the corridors of the Knesset. So, uh, well, we need to have... It's, 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 uh, as you said, long hallways, sometimes stuffy, and there needs to be an accommodation for someone who doesn't have an office there to step right, in. There, there are always, you know, there are solutions. If you have recycle bins with plastic recycling, whatever, you know, then there are ways of dealing with it. But uh, to actually ban uh, water coolers from the Knesset, it seems to me quite extreme. And, Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. Leah, what would you do differently in the last uh, three months, almost? Um what would I do differently? I would have left a different time in the morning if I had a choice and uh, not been the car, you know, not have had uh, Lucy be the car that was attacked. Um, 
Uh, aside from that, um, uh, nothing really. I mean, uh, you know, I, th I think that uh, the trick in life is not to look back, but to look forwards. Um, and I've said to people to look at the good, not the bad. Um, I heard from um, uh, a rabbi, Akiva Tor, actually. I was on a peace uh, uh, trip with uh, Methodist uh, ministers about 10 years ago. I haven't talked about this, but it's a whole long story in itself. But one of the meetings we had was with this guy at the foreign ministry who was Akiva Tor. He's now the, uh, the ambassador for South Korea. And um, what he did was he, he shared the, the, the weekly parsha, the weekly portion with us, which happened to be Baigash, which is a story of Judah uh, confronting Joseph uh, when uh, Benjamin has been taken uh, for stealing a golden cup. And Joseph says, I'm going to keep Benjamin here. That right. was his plan to keep his brother there and get rid of the others and you know, start from scratch. Uh, and Judah makes this amazing speech, which is really what saves uh, the family and, and means the 12 tribes can exist and the whole future of Jewish people. And his speech is as follows. He says, um, he says, if you keep Benjamin, he says, then my father will die. Yeah. So Akiva said to us, and, and at this time, the Methodist Church of Britain was threatening to do BDS, a sanctioning of Israel for whatever they had in their mind at the time. Uh, and the purpose of this meeting was to try and avoid that. He said to them, look, what, what, what would a normal person have said in justification of his brother? They might have said, look, Benjamin's a good boy. He's got a criminal record. I'll show you, you know, what he's like. It must be that somebody planted it on him. He didn't do it. You know, that, that's a normal reaction to a situation like that. But he said, what did he do? He actually said, if you do this, my father will die. That's all he says. And it works, by the way. So, so he says, well, why did he do that? He said, because if uh, Judah at that point had uh, accused Joseph and his men of planting a cup on Benjamin and, right. and said it wasn't that wasn't what happened. He said they would have come up with their truth, which was it did happen. And they would just have a face to face argument. They would have come, come to nothing. He said, but actually, by looking at the future and not looking at the past, he was able to get through that situation because nobody was able to, to dispute the fact that if Benjamin was taken, his father would die. So they can actually focus on something which was actually true and everyone could agree on and didn't put them into conflict. And that is you know, the, the secret to shalom is uh, both uh, as, you know, between us and our, our neighbors here, but also internal, internal uh, shalom is, is about not looking back at what could have been, but looking forwards as to what we have to do next. And I think that is uh, a message that uh, I, I've learned in the last three, three months, that uh, you know, these situations force you to see life differently and to live life differently. Um, and you, you're on a, a pro different projection completely to where you were. But uh, in terms of looking backwards, um, it doesn't help us. In fact, um, I said that at the first funeral, that uh, the, the night of, the, of uh, the 7th of April, I tried to sleep. And every time I fell asleep, my nightmares were worse than my... Uh, I, I had nightmares. Yeah, yeah, but then I woke up and my reality was worse than the nightmares. Um, and so I was stuck in this loop where I kept trying to get to sleep. And then I kept thinking about what had happened and what might have been. And, and, and I realized very quickly that that wasn't going to help me in any way. It was only going to sort of torment me. Um, and then when, when I and the kids realized that if we start you know, thinking about the future, think about what we have, thinking about the good things, uh, we, we've got a way out of uh, the, the pain or, or a way of dealing with the pain. Um, and that's really what we've been trying to do since then. So maybe it's redundant. Thank you for that. But what gives you the greatest comfort now? Uh, thank God, my, my kids, uh, my family, um, and the community, and uh, living in the land of Israel, and uh, hopes for the future, for a better future for uh, Jewish people and for the Arab people of the whole region uh, and for the whole world. And what's hardest for you and your kids? 
Hardis is talking about Meyer and uh, Rena and Lucy and uh, focusing in on their amazing qualities. Um, and easiest is to avoid doing that. But it, of course, is, is there, it's important to to share uh, them and, and obviously we're not forgetting them. Um, so that's uh, that's the balance. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one last question. Um, again, I shared this with a lot of Christian friends specifically, and I was surprised, but not surprised. And I think you will probably feel the same. Many of them wrote back a recurring message, a recurring question. What's your message to Christians who love and pray for Israel and the Jewish people about the reality of the Jewish people dealing with anti-Semitism? And secondarily, how can Christians help and pray for you and your family and others who have gone through such unthinkable tragedies? So I have an unusual request. Um, I actually published uh, a map, which I'm showing to, uh, I'm meeting with uh, different international figures at the moment uh, involved in peace plans and so forth. Um, it's, it's a topic which is very uh, uh, relevant to the moment because Israel is facing potential conflict with Iran, looking for a peace plan in order to uh, work with its neighbors um, and, uh, of course, to solve the current situation. So one of the things that I've shared with people is a map of the Middle East which shows color uh, graded, which countries are free in green and which are not free in red. And of course, as you know, uh, but many of you do as well, there's there's sea of red and there's one dot of green, which if you you zoom in, you see is Israel and you see within that Palestinian Authority and Gaza are red. So those authorities are not free. They're fascist regimes. Uh, All the neighbors of Israel are fascist regimes. And that means that the Arabs, 200 million Arabs who live in the region, are living in uh, poverty, mostly in slavery, mostly have no freedom of expression, no freedom of uh, voting for the government, no freedom of religion. Christians in Bethlehem, as you know, have been sort of pushed out. uh, And there's no freedom of religion in Iran or Syria and nobody would even in in Egypt. Um, So um, I would, you know, I I think we're back in the 1980s (laughs) where Jews were fighting for um, the Soviet Jewry campaign to free Jews from Russia and to break down the communist uh, regime to, to create freedom for people in those uh, in those countries, which was pretty successful, maybe not for Russia itself, but for its neighboring countries that it had control over. Now, Poland and Ukraine or whatever, they're now in a better situation than they would have been if they'd still been in, in the Russian domain. Um, and I think that there are now 200 million um, Arabs, Muslims, who are in the same situation as those um, Soviet, uh, you know, as, as, as people who are under the Soviet control sure. 30, 40 years ago. And um, they need the support, actually, of Americans, Jews, uh, Christians, Muslims as well, to march down the streets of New York and of Los Angeles and uh, uh, all over the all over the America and the world, um, uh, demanding the, um, the, the, the freedom of those people from their evil regimes. Um, and I think, you know, we have to understand that there are a lot of people who are good Arabs who are trapped in, in a terrible situation where the world media doesn't really care about them because the world media wants to make uh, cheap bucks, quick bucks. Um, so therefore, they've worked out in order to do that, to get into these countries, they have to toe the line of the leaders. Yes. Um, and so the people have, have no voice. Um, if they say anything, they get killed. Um, and the media is not interested in that point, point of view, because if, if they follow these people and tell the truth, then the leadership of those countries will um, ban them 
so that be at the end of their business. Um, so, so we have this sort of strange cycle, and the leaders as well. I met uh, recently with the uh, EU ambassador to Israel, and I didn't know there was an EU ambassador to Israel, um, as well as German and French and Italian. Sure. And, yeah, uh, but there is. And I said to him, "Is there?" Uh, and he was talking. You know, he's here because of the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict. So I said to him, "Is it really a conflict?" I said, "I mean, I, I felt the conflict because sort of my family were massacred you know, recently, but there were 30 people were killed." Uh, on the Jewish side in the last six months. I said, you know, 180 were killed in car crashes. I said, you know, statistically, it's very, it's a very small number. I said, how many people were killed in Syria in the last few years? He said, well, yeah. half a million in 10 years. I said, is there an EU ambassador to Syria to deal with the Syrian conflict? He said, no. I said, why not? He said, it's too, it's too dangerous. Uh-huh. So, so we, we, this, is the situ- this is the reality, Jonathan, in Israel, that, you know, we've created this beautiful oasis of peace and democracy and freedom. So the media and the world's politicians are very happy to come here and spend a lot of time here discussing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which really is very minor in the scheme of what's going on in the Middle East. Um, and they're not in the places where they should be, which is Tehran and Damascus and Gaza and um, you know, other countries around uh, the Middle East where, where people have no human rights. Um, and the, the journalists don't want to be there because they don't want to have families living in these places. So they choose to be here focusing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which, as we know, is, is not really the conflict that uh, is made out to be. Uh, and the, set, the terrible settlers, as we know, you know, you and I are not quite as bad as people normally paint us to be, um, because this is actually the only place, this is the anti-truth of modern media, yes. which is that since this is the safest place to be, this has got to be the place of the worst conflict because that's the most convenient place to put your media team and your foreign political team to do a peace negotiation. Because if you actually had to do a peace negotiation in Iran or Syria, you'd probably get shot on the spot. Yeah. So let's keep away from those real war zones and let's focus on the peace zone. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's part of what keeps this whole thing going. So your prayer is for the rest of the Middle East, for the Arab and Muslim so I think that my prayer is that people will see the truth and not the anti-truth and people will reject uh, those media companies that are spouting the anti-truth and uh, hopefully uh, bankrupt them over time um, and, and put them out of business. And that um, there'll be pressure maybe from the American people to rebel against such uh, outlets which are, are perpetuating uh, war in this region um, for their own aims. And uh when I wrote to, when I spoke to uh, Richard Green, who is the head of the bureau of CNN mm-hmm. um, in Israel, Jerusalem, I, uh, and he basically made a moral equivalence between me and the mother of terrorists, saying that we were in exactly the same situation. Oh my God! Um, and I, I found that so disgusting. I said, I said, you make me sick. I said, the CNN makes me sick. I said, you, and the fact is, I said, it's not like you're doing it out of ignorance because you're probably the most educated people in the region. I said, most of you have degrees, some of you from Ivy League universities. So you can't say that you're misinformed. You're just um, misinforming others for your evil purposes, Oof. which are basically to sell cheap Chinese goods, which are polluting our planet, and, uh, and, and petrol for, uh, you know, for, for cars, which also pollute our planet. So frankly, you know, you're, you're, you're raking in lots of uh, advertising money from uh, certain rogue nations. And uh, you're using it for your own benefit and, and you're sacrificing human lives like my family's lives um, in order to do it. So, frankly, that, that is extremely evil. And uh, that's why uh, yeah, we do have a, a strategy to deal with uh, CNN, um, which please God, we'll hear more about uh, in the next month or two. I look forward to hearing that. Um, before I let you go, we've, we've gone longer than I told you we would. I'm very respectful of your time. Is there anything 
that I didn't ask that you especially want to share um, before you go? No, just a th- thank you to you and thank you to the Christian viewers. And uh, I, I've had a, a sort of Christian evangelical week. Actually, last week I met with uh, Pastor Paula, yeah, who came through my uh, my doors, and uh, with uh, Chris Mitchell from CBN, uh, who also came through my doors. And I, have, I find them the most uh, ch- uh, charming uh, people. And sure. uh, I went I went to a Christian school, high school. You probably don't know, but I went to a Christian school in England. So I'm, I'm very uh, aware about uh christian culture i came top in uh in um uh, scripture uh <laughs> when i was about uh, 11 years old it was new testament <laughs> and uh because i knew nothing about it i took uh copious notes and when it came to writing an essay at the end of you know for, for homework i just wrote word for word what the teacher had said in the class and i got 100 percent. and uh, the first lesson actually he, he read out my essay as a sample essay to everybody wow and uh, which, of course, didn't make me very popular, as you can imagine. But in any case, um, everybody was laughing at the end of it because they recognized every single turn of phrase that he had in his class. Um, I'd copied down word for word and just written it straight back. So uh, that was, uh, and once people realized that's all he wanted, then everybody just copied me the same. So um, always, yeah. always teaching people. Yeah. Very so. nice. Rabbi Leo D., thank you for, thank you for being gracious to join and share and and as we be an inspiration that you are on the podcast called Inspiration from Zion. Uh, always in the last two years, we've been doing this two years now, exactly that we've started the podcast. Um, we've been offering a special volume from Jonathan's bookshelf, just asking everyone to like and comment and share. And when you do, we pick one person each month at random to take a new volume, a different book, connecting you to Israel and the Jewish people. So please do that, especially this episode. Um, We're always grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. And I want to ask if you're ever in the area, pop in and thank them for helping make conversations like this possible. And also special thanks to our friends, the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please continue joining us to help continue making dialogues like this possible and building bridges. Um, Leo, it won't surprise you, but in, in addition to the many profound questions and ask uh, what what can Christians around the world pray for, not a few people made additional donations, um, not just in your honor, but in memory of Lucy and Maya and Rena, which we commit to continue to do good things with. And I want to ask anyone else today to 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 think generously and and add to that so we can be part of the healing we we felt that we feel it um for you personally and and um in the broader community in general um and so this episode is in 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 memory of leo uh, of, of lucy and maya and rena and if you'd ever like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. Today, we got a bit of a rabbinic conversation as well, but if you have questions and comments about this or other topics, especially traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs, please be in touch. And finally, and most important, please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics in Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. 
wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.